0: Hello once again and welcome to a shot of theology. I am your host Mark, uh, and this this episode will be partially subtitled. How I desperately try to <laughs> maintain my composure with a brutal pulsating headache, um, but regardless, uh, we're going to power through. Uh, we're on chapter seven through thirteen of First Clement. Uh, thankfully, we got through. Pretty much all of the the historical context that we needed, and so we can jump straight into the text. I hope everyone had a, is having a good Thanksgiving weekend, um, and I hope this is a good blessing to be a part of that. But without further ado, let's begin. Chapter seven, uh, according to the translation, is entitled "An Exhortation to Repentance." This is so. This is a new section. Um, Clement had basically been spending chapters 1 through 6 talking about the situation that was happening before where the uh, Corinthian church was prior to the situation that was happening they were faithful they were loyal they were loving to one another they were merciful they were humble you know, all those good all those good descriptors of a of a solid church however when the situation Happened, uh, whatever situation was occurring that caused the the young men to, or the the immature members of the church to throw out the leadership, all of a sudden everything started shifting and becoming much worse. People were descending into selfishness. People were descending into envy and jealousy. And Clement spends the second half of of chapters 1 through 6 talking about the dangers of what will happen. Uh, He uses descriptors from the Old Testament. He uses descriptors of the the legendary martyrs Peter and Paul. And he also uses very strong descriptors of people maybe the Corinthians had even directly related to, spoken to, uh, who were martyred in various ways. So what he's doing right now is he's taking that thought, he's taking that idea, that, that remembrance of the witnesses that came before who dealt with the very situations that Corinth was just about to be swept up in, whereas the, you know, Corinthian church was dealing with the idea of becoming selfish, becoming envious, becoming jealous. The people who Clement wanted to remind them of were on the receiving end of those who were jealous, selfish, uh, envious, and hateful towards others. And Clement warns them very sternly and very strongly, you could become this if you're not careful. But he doesn't do this in a, in a, I'm better than you, I'm superior to you. And chapter seven through 13 really, really emphasize that and really show that. So let's start. These things, beloved, we write unto you, not merely to admonish you of your duty, but also to remind ourselves. For we are struggling on the same arena, and the same conflict is assigned to both of us. Wherefore, let us give up vain and fruitless cares, and approach to the glorious and venerable rule of our holy calling. Let us attend to what is good, pleasing, and acceptable, in the sight of him who formed us. Let us look steadfastly to the blood of Christ, and see how precious that blood is to God. Which, having been shed for our salvation, has set the grace of repentance before the whole world. Let us turn to every age that has passed and learn from generation to generation the Lord has granted a proclamation. Sorry, I skipped the line. The Lord has granted a place of repentance to all such as would be converted unto him. Noah preached repentance, and as many as listened to him were saved. Jonah proclaimed destruction to the Ninevites, but they, repenting of their sins, propitiated God by prayer, and obtained salvation, although they were aliens to the covenant of God." So Clemens starts with a that very strong reminder that he's not just talking down to the Corinthians. He's not saying, well, we at Rome have it all together. But instead he's saying, no, 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 we're dealing with the same things. When we make judgments and admonish people we always have to remember to reflect on our own struggles, our own situations, the things that, that we ourselves are dealing with. You know, when we tell people you shouldn't be too prideful, shouldn't we also be very, very aware of the dangers and also the temptations of pride in our own hearts and in our own lives? The important thing to consider in this is that correction and admonishment uh, whenever those things are necessary for a church, and they should be called out. Whenever things happen that need to be called out, we're not perfect, and we and we shouldn't expect people to be mind readers. We shouldn't expect people to to know absolutely everything because well we don't, <laughs> we don't at all. So instead, we should come with an open hand, of saying, look, I know where where you want to go, I know the reasons why you're doing these things, I was there too. And sometimes I am still there. Sometimes I am still struggling and still dealing with those issues. But I know by being somebody who has experienced this, that this isn't the right way. We need to go towards Christ. We need to go towards the Lord. We're in this together to build each other up towards the calling that God has for us, not through something that we're designing for ourselves. And one of the really cool things that that Clement talks about, Clement really strongly encourages us to do, is to look to the past. Look steadfastly to the blood of Christ, yes, but also turn to every age that has passed and learn That from generation to generation the Lord has granted repentance to all such as would be converted to him. And he looks into the Old Testament and talks about those who preached repentance even though they didn't know who Christ was. They knew that God was making a way for deliverance. Now the interesting thing here is that he says that Noah preached repentance and as many as listened to him were saved. I guess you could technically say that. Uh, in, the, in the scripture, uh, in Genesis 6, he, he, he I, I feel like he embellishes a little bit. Because in Genesis 6, at the very least, uh, God tells Noah to build the ark. It doesn't really say anything about Noah talking to the people and ministering to the people around him. Although it could technically be said that the building of the ark the obedience to God and you know any of those questions that the neighbors had about why there is a multi-acre boat being built in their backyard Noah had to to respond to those of course And it's interesting that he says and as many as listened to him were saved So basically the only ones who actually listened to him were his wife his three sons, and then you know their 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 wives, <laughs> and I you it's it's just interesting wording, and, and it's something that I don't know if I necessarily agree with the wording, but regardless, Noah's story is a story of redemption. That even though God is going to bring judgment upon wickedness and evil. He is also caring for a remnant. He's keeping his own safe from that. And then the next one he says is, Jonah proclaimed destruction to the Ninevites, but they, repenting of their sins, propitiated God by prayer and obtained salvation, although they were aliens to the covenant of God. Now, the really fascinating thing is, this is actually sort of the reverse of Noah. Noah. I don't know if Clement did this on purpose, but Jonah's story, um, if you haven't read through the book of Jonah, is one of Jonah rebelling against God and against God's commandments. Jonah was a prophet of God, uh, well-known in the area, and God gives him an edict saying, go to Nineveh, uh, the capital of the Assyrians. Now, any... Israelite at this time, any any especially any Jewish person who has studied through history would know that Assyria is not exactly the uh, biggest, I guess you could say advocates of, of the Jewish people at this time. Um, they were responsible for the fall of the northern kingdom, uh, the ten tribes who split away from Judah um, during the time of, of history a little bit after David, and Solomon, when there was a civil war and it split up the tribes. Both of those kingdoms lasted for a little bit of time after that. And the northern kingdom was actually conquered by Assyria in around 722 BC. Uh, Jonah happened before this. Um, not entirely sure of the exact time, but... It happened before this conquest and also when Assyria was in a very weak position. However, they were not really, they were still not well liked. So when Jonah hears about this, when he hears, go to the Ninevites, go to the city of Nineveh in Assyria and preach uh, that they should repent or destruction will come to them, what does Jonah do? Well, he runs away. He runs as as far away as he can in the opposite direction, trying to make as much space from him as he could to the Ninevites and to this mission that God had given to him. And, of course, (coughs) nothing goes well. Uh, He gets on a boat and he tries to flee across the Mediterranean. However, God, not being... Not being one to be slighted by his chosen prophet, sends a storm to stop this boat. And you know, long story short, uh, Jonah is cast into the sea, gets swallowed by the fish, uh, the famous story of Jonah, three days in the whale, uh, and then in the whale he finally says, "Okay, fine, I, I have been, I have been foolish. I need to do this. I'm supposed to do this." And so the whale or the the fish, I should say, uh, spits him up. And so he again has this situation. God comes to him, repeats the exact same line, and it's an interesting story of God saying, "Okay, now I've brought you back to <laughs> to to the same spot. Okay, now do what I'm telling you to do." It's almost like a parent who is, you know, trying to tell their child to to do a chore in the house and they try to run away and the parent goes after them, grabs them and brings them back to the exact same place and it's like, okay, we're going to try this again. And so the same words come out. Go to the city of Nineveh and preach and proclaim this warning of destruction to them. And then finally Jonah goes to it. The interesting thing if if you study Jonah 3 is that when Jonah's proclaiming destruction he does not Proclaim an out for them. He doesn't proclaim redemption or repentance. He just says in 40 days Nineveh will be overturned so he he Does quote unquote what God tells him to do but he doesn't in this sort of backhanded way of Not even giving the possibility of of redemption or repentance however God works in the people and suddenly the Ninevites were were frightened, and they say, "Oh, we need to we need to do something about this." And so they they hold the biggest fast, the biggest uh, sacrifice. All, all of these things that they can do, they all dress in sackcloth. They dress their animals in sackcloth. The the king of the city uh, rolls in the dust, and their their reasoning for this is simply saying. Who knows? Maybe God will still forgive us. Maybe God will still redeem us from, from this wrong, from these things that we have done. And what does God do? He relents. He lifts his hand of judgment from them, and nothing happens. The really cool story of Jonah is that Jonah is about Jonah coming to realization of the redemption of God. It's not about the judgment and then eventual redemption of the Ninevites. Although it's a very important part of the story. The focus of the book of Jonah is that even those who proclaim God, even those who, who would normally preach God's mercy, God's love, God's judgment, can put their own little motives into those things. However, it's God's will. That will be done. It's God's glory that will happen. It is him who is the center of our ministry. And then we shouldn't get in the way of that. Moving on to chapter eight, uh, we sort, we, we deal actually with one of my favorite scripture passages. So let's go into it. Uh, The ministers of the grace of God have, by the Holy Spirit, spoken of repentance, and the Lord of all things has himself declared with an oath regarding it. As I live, says the Lord, I desire not the death of the sinner, but rather his repentance. Now this one is pretty much a direct quote from Ezekiel chapter 33, and I wanted to read that to you. Here, chapter 33, and it is verse, I have my notes in like three different places, verse 11, but we're going to start in verse 10. So 10 and 11, and you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, thus have you said, surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us and we rot away because of them. How then can we live? Say to them. As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? And this isn't the only time in the book of Ezekiel that there is this this almost plea, or pretty much a plea, almost like a father pleading to his children, don't do this. Turn back, turn back from this destructive path. because in chapter eighteen of the Book of Ezekiel, one of my favorite, favorite, favorite favorite passages in the Bible, and I'm so happy that Clement quoted it because that gives me an excuse to put it in. Ezekiel chapter eighteen, verses thirty to thirty two therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel. Every one according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed, and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. So turn and live. If you haven't noticed, the reason why this is one of my favorite passages is it because it, it, it's because it clearly displays the love that God has, even for those who have turned away from Him, even for those who have who have rejected Him, who have rebelled against Him, who were accusing Him. Or earlier in Ezekiel chapter 18, they're trying to blame all the problems on people who came before. They're saying, "Oh well." You know, God just hates us. God just wants to judge us and kill us. But this this passage is a clear sign that even those who have fallen astray, even those who who think themselves cursed, think themselves uh, hated by God. Even those who rebelled to the point that God lifted His hand from them are still loved. By him, are still cared for by him, and the reason Clement goes into this, the reason Clement is so so insistent on this idea, that he refers back to Ezekiel, which I don't think very many people have actually studied. It's actually in, in my from my point of view is one of the more emotional books in the Old Testament It's dripping with with emotion not exactly uh, appropriate for all ages in, in many spaces I will perfectly admit that but nevertheless at an appropriate time read it for yourself and tell me that it doesn't have emotion and tell me that God doesn't care about his people man but the reason Clement refers to this, the reason Clement is insistent upon this idea is he wants to show that God is not abandoning Corinth. God is not turning away from the Corinthian people, even though these difficult situations are happening. He even refers into to Isaiah uh, chapter 1, where it says... Let me give the reference to you. Uh, Isaiah chapter 1 verses 18 to 20. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Clement is insisting. Clement is pressing the issue for, for the Corinthian church. To come back. To come back into repentance. To come back into the love of God. Because as they're trying to go their own way. As they're trying to to do their own thing. They're actually denying the mercy and the love that God has for them. That God is already giving to them. Desiring therefore that all his beloved should be partakers of repentance. He has by his almighty will established these declarations. This is something that Clement presses into the people and Clement wants to make very clear. And then he shows through examples from the Old Testament uh, believers, people who had faith in God, uh, starting in chapter 9, talking about Enoch who, being found righteous, was translated and death was never known to happen to him. And also Noah being found faithful, preached regeneration to the world through his ministry, and the Lord saved by him the animals, which with one accord entered into the ark. So he's giving examples, and this is actually uh, true for chapters 10, 11, and twelve as well. Uh, starting with, you know, starting with the the ones that we know less about, Enoch, who really only has a sentence. Of reference in the Old Testament and one brief mention in Hebrews uh, chapter 11 verse 5 for those of you who want to to check it out and study because Hebrews Hebrews is probably a very strong inspiration to this section and I'll get to it here in just a little bit Um, but you'll see the references Uh, Abraham styled the friend was found faithful And the interesting thing in these sections is that for most of these people, they believed, they trusted in God, even in an uncertain situation, and that faith was found as righteousness. One of the most significant lines regarding Abraham is the quote, Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he had so many situations whenever it comes to those things. Uh... Clement mentions a few of them. He he goes into Genesis chapter twelve, where he talks about how he will bless Abraham. He gives what is what is known in the Reform world as the Abrahamic Covenant. You know, you know, leave your country, leave your family and your kin, your father's house, into the la- and go into the land which I shall show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, and you shall be blessed. I will bless them that bless you, and curse them that curse you, and in, the, in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. In the, the ESV, it actually says, I will bless you, and you will be a blessing. And the significance of that, the importance of that, is that not only is God blessing his people in, in, in this covenant. Uh, what's known as the Abrahamic Covenant is one of the, the covenants that is culminated in Jesus. When, when Christ is sacrificed, when Christ uh, reveals himself as the representative of mankind, who, who gives himself as an atoning sacrifice and rises again from the dead, he takes the place of, of Adam uh, and becomes what is known in, in the scripture as the second Adam, um, and therefore the representative of mankind to God. And so when that happens, Jesus takes on this covenant as well as the others. So then what happens with that? What does that mean for, for me right now or, or for you listeners? Well, that means when you're in Christ, God promises that, that he will bless you. When you show faithfulness, when you possibly need to leave your country, your kindred, your father's house, it's being willing to give up the things of this world in order to follow after the place that God has promised, the land that God has promised, or what we would say, salvation, redemption in Christ. And when we do that, God blesses us, to be sure. It's not something that we just get the benefits of at the end of the time, and we just have to wait until then. But God blesses us even now with patience, with confidence, with security in Him. Uh, Not necessarily physical security, as in God will make sure that nothing bad ever happens to us, but rather with spiritual security. That in those times, he uh, He is our support. He is our foundation. He's the rock on which we build our home rather than the sand, which would be the place, you know, the home country, the the kindred and the father's house that Abraham gives up. These things that will wither away into dust as time goes on. But the Lord endures forever. So with that, with being blessed, God also says, And you shall be a blessing. Now, a lot of people have a a tendency to move over that. Or to have just a brief thing of saying, oh, well, you know, that means good stuff will happen around us. Well, kind of. But what it means is that the promise of blessing in the covenant not only comes to us. It doesn't end with us but it passes on to those around us. When we truly are seeking after God, when we really are uh, trying to understand God, trying to reflect God in everything that we do, trying to be Christian, (laughs) trying to be human as God has imagined humanity to be. When we do that, we are a blessing to those around us. And therefore, more and more people Come into faith and receive the blessing of God and enter into union with Christ, as you would call it, or enter into the family of God. Becoming believers. Receiving salvation and grace. The promise of Abraham is not just for those who are considered right now to be children of Abraham. The promise of Abraham is that God is spreading his kingdom to all mankind, to all nations, to all peoples. What does it say there? I will bless you and you shall be a blessing to the nations. That's an important thing to remember. It's not just for us. It's not just for our security or for our peace of mind or for our confidence. But it's so that we have the confidence and the love and the drive and the passion and determination to go and deliver this message and pass this message to other people. It's a heavy goal, but it's something that we need to, to remember every time we go through. In chapter 11, he talks about Lot. Now, a lot of people have kind of mixed feelings about Lot. However, I did want to give... A bit of peace of mind for why Clement would use Lot as a representative of righteousness, despite some of the stories that you might read regarding Lot. In Second Peter Chapter 2, verses 6 through 9, I believe. Let me yes, 6 through 9. Starting in verse 6. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as the righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials, and to keep, them, keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And ending of verse 10, just to finish the sentence, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. And the interesting thing about this, you know, you read you read the story of Lot, and you, you think he's a little bit of a a compromiser, I guess you could say. Uh, he, he is a bit of a mixed bag. He, he has his issues and he has his situations. And people can probably rightly criticize a situation where he's... As someone who follows after God, still lives in an area that is beset by wickedness and evil and sin. However, Second Peter still very clearly says that even in the city, he remained righteous. And he's the one person, he, well, with, with his, along with his wife, who God sends messengers to bring him out of the city. To get away before the judgment, before the destruction. He's the one righteous man in the city. And they talk about the tragedy of Lot's wife. Who having that lingering regret, that lingering desire to stay in the comforts of their home. Turns and is, uh, is transformed into a pillar of salt. These things show the danger of having that lingering attachment to the worldly life, uh, the city of Corinth, and this is why this is actually pretty significant for Corinth, the city of Corinth was pretty well known for, you could very easily call it just compromising attitude. It was, it was, it was very much the melting pot of the Greek world at that time. All sorts of religions were, were you know, normal, were the norm. There and not all of them were PG, uh, if you can understand the meaning of that. Not all of them were uh, moderation and humility and stoicism and that sort of thing. There were a lot of them who that were indulgent. Uh, Dionysian cults, Bacchanalian cults. <laughs> I guess I should say I was about to say another word, but. Maybe, maybe not much. I'll hold off on, on that. But they were used to being given into excess. And many people from the Corinthian church were probably people who came from that. Maybe some of the people who threw out the elders were people who said, oh, well, they were being prudish. Of course we'd be able to do these things. It's not like it's hurting anyone. And this is what Clement warns against. That God despises wickedness, and wants to call the people into repentance. Remember Ezekiel 18 and 33. God does not rejoice in judgment. God rejoices when people come into repentance, come into faith. He is glorified in judgment, but he doesn't take pleasure in it. And that's something we need to remember and be very somber and reflective on. And then chapter 12 which is all about Rahab and Rahab's story. Uh, If you're interested in Rahab's story, it's in Joshua chapter 2. But the place I wanted to, to check out and go to was in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31. Very simple. And it says, By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. <clears throat> the interesting thing that I, that I want to point out as far as the Joshua 2 point and the reason I didn't want to go into detail for that is that it's a really long passage um, and I think we have plenty of those <clears throat> but the, the thing that I really wanted to point out was the red thread at the very end it talks about uh, the sign of, of Rahab's house the place that they were going to spare from destruction. The one house in the city of Jericho that they would spare would be the one with the red thread. Now what Clement does here is he directly points that to Christ. He directly correlates that to salvation. Redemption shall, should flow through the blood of the Lord to all them that believe in hope in God. Maybe. Possibly. What I would more argue is that this this strikes of uh, symbolism of Passover, and now any theologian would basically say, "Well, yes, Passover was also looking forward to the redemption of Christ and the, the sacrifice being provided by you know by the Lamb, the the blood of the Lamb, uh, preventing the angel of death from coming in, giving a sign that these were the people of God who are." Who are here. And <clears throat> so it's indirectly. Kind of a reference to Christ. Uh, indirectly a reference. To the Lord's provision. In those things. Uh, but I feel like the Scarlet Thread. It, it it just sounds more like a symbolism. For the Passover. And it would make more sense. Within that history. Because this is Joshua. And his. uh And the, the people of Israel. Finally coming into the promised land. To take what. What God had promised to them, and so they still have the uh, the symbols, the stories of their fathers uh, about the deliverance of God in those times. So it would be a very strong symbol for them. However, I, I do also think that there are uh, a strong signs of what are called Christophanies or revelations of Christ, or uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, And the simple reason for that is because the Old Testament is the promises of God looking forward to that final redemption, the final salvation that God provides. In Genesis 22, when Abraham is about to sacrifice Isaac, Isaac asks, you know, where's the sacrifice? And then God says, God will provide the sacrifice. In Genesis chapter 3, when... Uh, God is delivering the the judgment to Eve, he talks about an offspring coming to crush the serpent's head. There are many of these prophecies, revelations, and appearances of Christ-like imagery in the Old Testament. And it's not bad to to look at those in a symbolic way per se, uh, and also is looking forward to this promise. But whenever we Whenever we put too much or whenever we put unintended weight upon those things, like it must be a sign of for the Lord, we kind of take away the the significance it had in that moment, in that situation. So simply put, the Scarlet Thread, I definitely think is much more of a Passover symbol than it is intentionally a Christophany or a revelation of Christ's deliverance. And that's not to downplay Clement or to downplay the, the metaphors and the symbolism in that that ultimately looks forward to Christ. But we have to put things where they need to be. But we'll move on to chapter 13. An exhortation to humility. Let us therefore, brethren, be of humble mind, laying aside all haughtiness and pride and foolishness and angry feelings, let us act according to that which is written. For the Holy Spirit says, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might, neither let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in the Lord, and diligently seeking him, and doing judgment and righteousness. Now, the thing that I want to point out in this is what Clement is saying here. He's appealing to humility be of humble mind, lay aside haughtiness, lay aside pride, lay aside foolishness and angry feelings. But the point that I want to uh, push into here is a, kind of a simple one. And I think it's something that Clement is, is pushing more towards. Even in chapter seven, whenever he talks about uh, saying, you know, this isn't this problem, the problem of pride, the problem of wanting to drive away all of these these rules and regulations isn't unique to Corinth. You know, Rome is dealing with it too. When when he says that, it gives a very strong credence to saying that people have a strong tendency to try and do things themselves. You know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and, uh, you know, do-it-yourself build your house with your own two hands kind of thing. And there are a lot of places in life where that is true. Uh, it, it's a very admirable thing to be a self-made millionaire, to be, to be somebody who is able to construct and uh, create, um, develop, invent, uh, or, or discover things you know, by their own wisdom, ingenuity, creativity. Christianity isn't like that. No, I'm not saying Christians aren't uh, prone to ingenuity and creativity and those sorts of things. Wonderful inventors and scientists have been uh, the most faithful of Christians. Uh, People who would put, certainly, me to shame, but that's not even a high bar. Creativity and ingenuity are things for creativity and ingenuity. But they're not for salvation and holiness because when we try to do those things by ourselves when we try to go our own path we follow after those situations that clement warned us about several chapters before prior to this instead what he is saying let him the glories glory in the lord diligently seeking him in doing judgment and righteousness. And this is something from you know, Jeremiah chapter 9, 1 Corinthians 1, 2 Corinthians 10. Those, those places are saying, I can't do it by myself. I'm not capable of finding salvation, of finding redemption, of finding freedom, yes, from sin. Not freedom to sin. The thing that we need to realize as as humans, as especially as people of God, is that Christianity is not restricting you, per, so to speak. Christianity is not something that's saying, oh, well, now you have to fit into this box. It is instead releasing us from chains, really, from chains of desire, of temptation, of pride, and of needing to do everything our way by ourselves, placing all of that burden, all of that weight, all of that heaviness of the world upon our own shoulders. We're not big enough for that. We're not strong enough for that. Now, one of the interests, one of the uh, very, very convenient sort of um, things that came up this past week whenever I've been prepping for this thing and writing these notes is that I've been going through an audiobook series. I, I just recently got a a humble bundle for a lot of Warhammer 40,000 uh, audiobooks. And oh, they're, they're really amazingly narrated. Uh, the guy who does those, I don't have his name next to me but they are they're incredible they're so and he gives like a voice for each character and all of that but anyway that's getting that's getting sidetracked i finished one of the books it's called horus rising and one of the big points in the the universe of warhammer forty thousand, uh for the uninitiated also also for the uninitiated just as a as a disclaimer uh the book series is not necessarily kid friendly. Uh, <laughs> it, it, no, it's it, it's not. It has it has very detailed uh, descriptions of combat. It is what I could say. It's pretty it's pretty messy. It's pretty gory. But anyway, at the end of this book, there is uh, the the titular character, Horus, um, but he's not the protagonist. The protagonist is one of his his captains uh, named Loken and a bunch of stuff happens bunch a bunch of stuff happens in in the book and I'm trying not to spoil it because it really is a, a good read for those of you who are allowed to read it but at the end of the book a situation happens and Horace who is the the sort of leader? His his title, his rank is War Master. So he is the the top dog in this situation. Everything kind of falls upon him, and the whole the whole story of this book series is how this man Horus turned against uh, his emperor and turned against his father, uh, the Emperor of Mankind. Uh, being in the year 40,000, humanity is now an intergalactic uh, race and so all of these things happen and, and I'm skipping over a bunch of stuff so, but this is the important part a situation happens and bad stuff happens uh, a war breaks out conflict arises over a very very awful misunderstanding um, a museum has burned down and and people are killed and it sparks a an intergalactic incident um, against this other group of humans. And during the time that they're sort of struggling, they're trying to put the pieces together, they're trying to figure this out. Um, you you get this look into to Horace's mind because Loken, the protagonist of the the book, is sitting right there next to his his commander. And he hears Horus whispering, It's too hard. This is too hard. Why did you give this to me? Why did you place me here, Father? And he's talking about the position of War Master, all of the responsibilities, all of the things that people are throwing at him, that he needs to be the sole representative for and you know he needs to be involved in all of these things and he says it's too hard this is too much i can't handle it i can't do it and i feel like that sometimes that 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 section really struck me it's where it's just like whenever you're in the midst of the muck whenever you're in the mire of regular everyday life and one weight after another keeps getting thrown onto you, and you say, it's too hard, this is too much. I can't handle this by myself. Well, of course you can't. (laughs) I can't. I absolutely can't. But the true wonder, the true power of the gospel, is that I'm not handling it by myself not even when it's whatever financial situation i don't have enough money to to deal with my financial problems Uh, i don't have enough time to be able to properly write a paper i don't have enough confidence self-confidence to uh, be able to put my ideas out there and actually be able to speak my mind in this situation you say it's too hard it's too much And God says to us so often, God says to me so often, I know, (laughs) of course it's too hard because you're not the one who's handling it all by yourself. I'm right here carrying the bulk of the load. All you must do is step forward in faith. Be like Noah, who didn't have a single sign that the rain would come. Until the ark was complete. And yet. Had faith. Be like Abraham. Who had no. Nothing. Except for the promise that God would give him a place to live. And left house and home. And traveled across the entirety of the Mesopotamian area. To find himself in a little. Little corner. Of the Mediterranean. Be like Rahab who sees two frightened spies coming in and even though she's in the midst of a city full of people, trusts that the spies have have God on their side. Because when we actually take a look at the world with Christian eyes, we realize that they're shaking, trembling with fear because God is coming and God will deliver his people. God will glory in himself, and we glory in God. Not by our might, not by our wisdom, not by any power that we have in ourselves, only in God. And therefore, with that heart, with that heart of realizing that our confidence and our hope and our peace and our joy is in Christ alone, not in ourselves. We then become vessels of that, reflections of that, like the moon reflecting the light from the sun. We reflect that peace, confidence, and joy, even in difficult situations, to all of the people around us. And then all of a sudden, in the lives that we live look a lot different. Mm, right. I think that is just about all I have to say. Thank you for tolerating (laughs) this. Uh, Man, I had so many places that I had to cut out just from having coughing fits. But we powered through. We endured. Uh, Thank you very much. I'm going to go rest my voice. And I hope to see you guys next week. Take care. Blessings.